Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the DevBits Podcast. I'm Chris. On today's episode, I am joined by Joey and Natalie as we discuss the different types of web development architecture. Okay, last week we got a little off topic, a great topic about online dating, so we steered a little further away from tech than we probably intended to. So this week we are going to bring it back a little bit more, um, and we're going to talk about the different types of architecture and approaches that you can take for web development. So a lot of my questions are going to be geared towards um, Chris and Joey, who I have here with me today. Um, So let's start like at a real super high level just kind of reviewing what types of development architecture are currently in use and what situations they're good for and maybe, you know, not good for. Okay. Um, So there are, I mean, there's essentially two separate types of architectures. You have your back end and your front end. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the most, in most cases, websites are going to have components of both. Um, if you they're know, done they're, right. Yeah, if they're done right. Uh, there are some exceptions. Uh, you know, one of the most general types of architecture is just going to be a straight static site, which is just images, text. There's no editing, no administrator panel, no right. database, nothing along those lines. It's just here's a, a one pager mm-hmm. about a county fair coming up. It's sure. a one time thing. We'll take it down in two weeks. Doesn't have to be fancy. So that's that's kind of at the bottom of like the most basic standard. There's no back-end technology. It's just pure front-end visuals. How the original sites used to be back in the 2000s. That was web 1.0. Right. Kind of web (laughs) (laughs) 0.0. Because that was at its core the most basic pages that you would see back when the the internet first came about. Since then though, things have evolved quite a bit and this is where we now get into front-end versus back-end architectures. Uh, So to start on the back-end the two most common approaches are going to be, I don't know if there's a technical term for this, but I just call it the, the standard server-side approach. Uh, this has been very, very common up to a couple of years ago. It's, it's languages like PHP.net, uh, Ruby, they output, you know, they generate server-side code and then they output static code to the end user. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, that was the standard approach. Um, but with the explosion of mobile apps, things have started to transition to more of a um, kind of API approach to where the back end isn't, uh, isn't outputting visuals anymore. It's just outputting data, essentially. It's dumping out data and then mobile apps or web apps are actually taking that data and adding the visuals and rendering the photos and handling all of the UI. So that's kind of the new approach because of the fact that you might have, a company might have a mobile app, a web app, or even better, an iOS app, an Android app, and a web app all talking to one central backend. So an example of this would be Facebook. You know, they have, okay. they probably have 15 different ways you can view Facebook, but it's all essentially talking back to one centralized logic system Mm -hmm. that handles and stores all of the data. Okay. Um, And then kind of a third one that is coming up a lot more recently 
is what's called serverless. And this is, this is definitely one of the newer approaches. I was just at the, the AWS summit here in Atlanta and uh, they were very much digging deep into this concept of serverless approach. Uh, and essentially what it means now is you utilize a third party service for the processing of your code instead of a server. Um, so an example of this would be if you wanted to say we wanted to build something like the Facebook API uh, and we were committed to AWS as a service, we would be able to utilize all of AWS's individual services to allow us to accomplish everything from the API endpoints, the authentication, the actual functions of processing the code and the database all through AWS services versus a server. Right. And at a very basic level, I understand that one of the biggest reasons to do that is because it's less expensive. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. That is uh, the, the main reason people are kind of moving towards that is it, you are not paying to host a server or a m massive stack of servers. Right. You, you only pay for when someone tries to hit your endpoint. So if, say, you hosted a sign-up flow through a serverless approach, you would only pay for it when someone actually hits your sign-up page, saves the data, and it flows down through AWS to the database. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, the other 20 hours a day where it's not in use, you, you have zero costs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, it, it's definitely, it's gaining traction, but it's still, it's still evolving as a technology. But I definitely, I, I think that's the future. And based on what I saw at the AWS conference, <clears throat> that's what they're really starting to push as well. So who besides AWS are like the, the big providers? Azure, Microsoft. Azure, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. similar. Yeah, uh, I, Azure has a lot of uh, functionality, but it's more for Microsoft tech stacks. I mean, obviously you can host, you know, a simple PHP app or a complex one on Azure, but generally it's best integrated with another Microsoft technology stack. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple other ones. There's there's smaller ones out there, but like I said, this is just starting to evolve. So I think we're we're going to see more and more kind of popping right. onto the scene. The only the only you know thing that concerns me about this approach is that you're very much intertwining yourself with right. some third party. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if you're going to go all in with AWS, you could be attached to them for the next 30 years because you're going to be so deeply intertwined with them. It's not like the server approach where if this server host provider isn't working for you, you just you pack switch. up your code and your database and you move. Right. <laughs> also, it kind of breeds a new type of sysadmin where you know they've had to spend the better portion of the last, since servers have been set up, uh, learning the ins and outs of the configurations. And once you move to like a service-based um, hosting provi provider like an AWS or Azure, mm -hmm. they're handling the under the hood stuff for you. You're basically checking boxes and right. uh, and then, but the, those services are doing it all for you. And so there's less learning under the hood. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting a new type of sysadmin that's being bred. Okay. Yeah, like you, you, have, to, you have to understand the AWS dashboards and tools right. to but be able to not accomplish this how to Yeah, but you don't have to go in and work. set server right. permissions right. yourself. That's all handled through these services right. through okay. admin UIs for the most part. Right. You don't okay. need to add memory, right? That before you'd crack open a server, throw mm -hmm. in 
on the motherboard a new yeah you literally change out chips of memory to expand your memory but now it's just you you check a box that (laughs) i want to auto scale and so when your website spikes your memory your processor all of Hmm. all of that goes up it detects that there's a spike and it automatically scales you up and charges you money and charges you money accordingly (laughs) yes So you're saying, because you made it seem like it's like a, like not a, a benefit to, or maybe it's just like a downside that you're so intertwined with these services. So it's like, let's say that you do want to pull apart, like what would that, what would that, like what would be the... You got to redo it somewhere else. It, yeah, you would you have, have to start over. I imagine every service is going to be slightly different. Um, so I know with like AWS, you would use their service, which is called Lambda, to mm-hmm. run your, your functions. But the, the way your code functions would interact with Lambda is going to be different than if you were to interact with like an Azure functions service. Um, so you are going to be highly intertwined. Now, this might, again, evolve over time. So they might make it easier to be able to, you know, export your 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 code your functions mm-hmm. all the individual pieces um, but yeah I mean all of the all the system administration the the database types the the functions that's all going to be customized for the service that you're intertwined with so it is going to kind of make the the barrier to switch very very complex yeah right. and some people care about that some people don't right. it just it's a business decision at that point so are there different um, serverless or cloud providers at different levels. So, like, is, are um, AWS and Azure those like enterprise level? Or they can, can be anybody? used as both. They yeah. can be used as both. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I can't speak to Azure as much, but AWS they have a anybody. free they have a free tier of every single one of their services. So, okay. if you're just hosting a personal website with family photos on it, the right. chances are you could build it through AWS services, okay. and it'd be 100 percent free. Well, because during I was at the AWS conference and during the keynote, one of the the presenters at the end, he said, anybody can use AWS. And yes. I was just like, eh, he's probably just saying that. You know, they're presenting. That's but, true. Okay. It, it is true, but I will say there is a learning curve. Right. There's there's a lot of complexities that they offer, but you don't have to utilize them. That's the thing. And they, right. they do a pretty good job of providing you instructions and tutorials. They have a lot of blog posts about here, how to get going with mm-hmm. this service or, mm-hmm. you know, how to host a WordPress website in AWS. They, they do provide a lot of information on that fact, but... You know, there there is going to be a learning curve. It's it's not going to be like the old school. You know, you pick your color, and right. you, you put a title on your like. They don't have that type right. of tool. You're still building a website. They right. just make the ability to get it online more gotcha. convenient and easy. Hmm. And Azure does the same thing. They yeah. you can have a single page, just your wedding website if you want. You can build yourself an HTML mm-hmm. and some CSS and throw mm-hmm. it up there, and it, they have a free tier. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And you keep mentioning that this is like a fairly new um, kind of offering of architecture. So when, like how new? Like obviously this didn't come out in the last year, but like how new is it? The serverless approach is very new. I mean, it's probably, I would say, I don't know for sure, but I would say probably a max of two years old. This this concept is really taking off. Uh, But then you just have the cloud-based approach, which also both of these services use, where you're just renting a cloud-based server. Um, so AWS doesn't equal serverless. It's just that's mm. one of the options right. with them. But you can okay. still do a standard cloud-based uh, you know, server with any of these services. There's DigitalOcean, Rackspace, AWS, Azure. There's, there's a ton of them out there. Um, <clears throat> so 
Yeah, so it's 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 they offer both approaches, and the the cloud server approach is much more mature and older. That's been around for see, I I kind of thought like cloud years. and serverless were like you could use those words interchangeably. interchangeably. So um, no, not really. Not really. No. no. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, serverless is a a specific type of IT architecture, but in the cloud just means you don't maintain any local, you know, we don't have an IT closet sure. here on site with a stack of computers in it. Right. It's all cloud-based. Okay. Right. And serverless just lets you choose all the different little services they have to provide that make up your website and your configurations and everything else as right. opposed to you managing them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And you hosting the physical box right. or hosting the cloud-based box. Gotcha. And you may even create the, the actual web application. They'll serverless, they'll create all that and enable the services. Okay. And that's what makes it serverless. And that's just, that's just the back-end right. architectures. Mm. Now, to switch gears a little bit, uh, we have the kind of the recent boom has been related to front-end architectures and how those are evolving. Because, uh, like I had mentioned, with the recent boom of APIs, mobile apps, all of that, now websites are not getting static content just spit out of a right. server somewhere. They're actually running code on the user's browser to generate the website. Okay. Um, so that's evolved a lot. Um, so again, as I would mentioned earlier, you have the most basic approach, which is just the static HTML, CSS. Um, but then uh, you also have the the one we've kind of already talked about, which is the server rendered, say PHP, for example. You have PHP code, you have a database, you're doing all of this server side, but then at the end, essentially, it just spits out HTML, CSS to the browser. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the server side approach, and the most common one with that is going to be like your WordPress websites. That's how WordPress websites gotcha. work. They everything processes on the server and just outputs the static assets to the person's browser. Okay. Uh, but the, the, new, the two newer approaches are, the first one is what's called a single page app. And so this means when the page loads in the browser, nothing is being delivered except behind the scenes code, and then that code is actually running on your computer, Okay. and it is contacting the server and pulling back all the relevant data. Um, so this is kind of a new approach. So this is this is is related to again the boom of mobile apps. So ideal architecture right now would be say let's take Asana for instance. Asana has a back-end API that is where they have endpoints to create a task, to edit a task, delete a task, all these different functions, projects, all of that, sign in, sign out. And then they have iPhone app that has a UI to accomplish all those things. Mm -hmm. That iPhone app UI is talking back to those endpoints. And same thing for Android app. Well, for the, the website, they don't necessarily want to have a separate server that is running server-side code and outputting a website. So what they did is they have a single page app approach where you visit the website, all it gives you is behind the scenes code, and then that behind the scenes code is running on your device just like it would run on your iPhone and it's talking back to the centralized API that actually maintains the data and communicates all the data. And so this, this new approach uh, 
is there, there's some positives and negatives to it. Uh, the number one a po positive is just because you can keep keep that centralized API. Mm -hmm. You know, your website can run off of the same API layer as your mobile app or you know any uh, any other you know UIs that use the API. Because uh, we're we're going to start seeing more and more of them evolving. You know, with things like the old school Google Glass, um, any of the VR stuff that's coming out lately. These you know again these are new interfaces to mm -hmm. be able to interact with some sort of a server to get the data yeah um, you know same with like Apple watches and all of that um, and so the negative the number one negative to this approach is SEO so search engine optimization with a single page app is not great because when the app first loads into your browser there's technically nothing there there's no page title, there's no images. All of that is done after the initial load. And for many web browsers, all they pick up is that initial load. Right. So the so, web crawlers have nothing to crawl. Exactly, yeah. There's okay. no data. No data has shown up on the page yet at okay. step one. Okay. And so that's why I say that this approach is better for something that's <clears throat> behind a authentication wall. So in the instance of Asana, your tasks and projects inside of Asana are not available on search engines. You know, that is all private data. So they don't care about getting your projects and tasks and all mm -hmm. of that SEO friendly. Right. So they utilize this approach because it is faster. It allows them to centralize their code a little bit more. Um, but if you're running a website that actually does need an SEO presence, mm -hmm. um, then this method isn't, isn't right for you. Okay. And an example of that would be something like, say, Instagram. Instagram has a website and they actually do have SEO for people's accounts, you know, if they're not private accounts. Right. They, they want people's Instagram accounts to show up inside of Google, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so they utilize another type of um, architecture this one is called it, it's it's a single page app it's the same one as the previous but it comes with a little caveat is that in that there's some pre-rendering that occurs okay elaborate so pre-rendering like I had talked about is this step number one when the code hits the user's browser sure <clears throat> it there's nothing there with a single page app but a recent trend has been to get something there at the step zero the step one phase make sure there there's some sort of basic code it might not be everything that you're gonna see on the page mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> this is actually going back to Instagram this is kind of how they do things so when you view Instagram on the web, they pre-render things like the account name. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Who's, whose name is this? Probably the bio. Right. Very, very basic information. How many followers they have, how many people they follow. <clears throat> but they don't pre-render like their individual photos. Right. All of Natalie's thousands of followers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thousands. <laughs> um, so... This give, then gives the search engine at least a little something 
to detect okay. that's there at the step zero. But then the rest of it, the, the profile photo, the actual photos, the names of all those followers and you know all of those additional details, the post data, all of that then is rendered from the user's browser. Right. So this this is probably the newest approach of all of them and it is still evolving greatly. Like I, I would still say this is a new technology. Um, and the reason it's not that common right now is because it's hard. It's really hard to actually accomplish pre-rendering because you have to you have to write code that will like pre-render half the website, but then half of it kind of comes in it's later. Like chunky. And, yeah, it's you know it's just difficult, and the tools to, to accomplish this, the packages to accomplish this, are still they're still kind of coming out. Okay. Um, so there are some some larger services that have achieved it, and they've done it very successfully. Instagram being you know the one of the examples of that but you know for the the littler people or the the smaller startups it might not be cost effective to go with this approach just yet right. because of how hard it might be to accomplish it sure. um, so then they would steer towards you know something a little bit more kind of in the past a little more traditional right um, to accomplish that um, so yeah so that that's kind of that's, I think that's the main approaches of the front-end architecture. Okay. So when our clients come to us, and I know that we do a variety of different projects, but do we ever have clients that don't have anything set up yet and it's like maybe like a brand-new startup, they kind of come to us for direction? Or is, is that like, do we do that a lot? or Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, so I would say that's probably the most common thing is a client just comes to us with a idea. That's, okay. that's really all they have is they have, here's what I want to accomplish. Right. Um, and So what, what's our um, role? Like, do we have, do we just kind of, I guess maybe it just depends on the client. Do we just say, here's what you need to do based off what you want to do? Or do we play more of like a, here, like educate, here are all the options, right. here's what it's going to cost down the road. We do. It really depends on the type of client you're talking about. Mm -hmm. that and what they want to build. And what they want to build. But if they've got an IT team, then they're going to have opinions on what we need sure. to create. Mm -hmm. But when they don't, we generally adhere to like the standards we would do on most projects, which is, you know, we're going to build your front-end APIs and your back-end APIs, and it's mm -hmm. going to live on AWS, and it's going to be on probably one of two platforms. And, um, and so that decision becomes easy because we do it over and over again so many times mm -hmm. that it just it's repetitive. Right. And probably, I mean, one of the first questions I'm going to ask a client is, is this idea web, mobile, or both? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's one of the biggest factors that comes into play when you're selecting an approach. Right. Mm. And when they say all of the above, they're, they're gearing towards it, then we do have or implement the due diligence up front to make sure that we're, re we're creating it appropriately so that down the, down the line, when mobile is ready to come on board, that mm -hmm. the system is braced for that. Okay. Because mm -hmm. I, I would say probably nine out of ten times now, people come to us and they are like, we, we only want to build it for iPhone right now, but eventually we do want a website to go along with it or right. an Android app or you know, any of the other apps out mm -hmm. there. Um, and so we like to make sure it's future-proofed for that approach. Okay. So what would that, let's say, give, give me 
can we talk about that? And like if someone said that we just want an iPhone app right now, but mm -hmm. we do want to go web-based eventually, yeah. like what out of the few uh, kind of approaches that you just discussed, like what one would you recommend? Well, we're going to build an API for you, right? Yeah. It's going to, you're going to have a, some sort of database, MySQL probably. We're probably going to put it on AWS. And then what is attached on the front end of all that, whether it is iPhone, whether it is Android or a web app, is kind of irrelevant at that point to us because we make, um, because we've created the brain, quote unquote, mm -hmm. we now make, we are creating the app as the dumb part of it. It more or okay. less is the... It's just the pretty part. The pretty part. Yeah, it's, it's the UI, the user experience. You're setting up the system for everything to work. Yeah, all of the logic lives in the brain that is the API. All the right. data lives behind the API. So the API is the main guts of right. most projects these days. And then you can just kind of build the interfaces. You can stagger them out right. if that's what a client wants. You know, most commonly for budget reasons, they'll just say, let's start with just iPhone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'll evolve into Android and then we'll evolve into web. And so we can build those individually all talking back to that one centralized API brain. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're just adding new faces as many as you want going forward. It okay. doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter. If you you can build a .NET at web app if you want. You can build Ruby. It doesn't matter which way you want to go with it at that point because we've built the brain right. and bolt on whatever you want after the fact. Okay. So I've interviewed a lot of, I guess, people that have architect titles in the past, but I've seen a lot of UI architects. Mm -hmm. Why are they only focused on the front end? Like, like what would have to be like a super large organization for them to only, because I feel like architects are kind of like. Well, not necessarily because with, with the modern approach of having the back end API separated from the front end UI, th those can be two completely different teams that specialize. You know, just like you see a UI or a front end engineer, right. you might see someone that's purely back end as well. Now to have those separate teams like Chris mentioned it's generally a larger company right for anyone to break it out as far as that you need to have a bigger organization right it doesn't make sense from like a cost perspective to, to have, have two both different, in general right. yeah unless okay. you're just always working on very large projects that require okay. it yeah okay. if you're if you're a, a new you know smaller maybe self-funded startup something along those lines mm -hmm. you're going to want to find a full stack guy that right. can, can and in achieve general everything. architects for the most in general are full stack unless they have that very that UI in their time. Generally they're going to be. It would be right. an exception if Okay. Not. Okay. Yes. That's what and I thought. If they are, you know, I being or someone that does heavy. Yeah. yeah. Well being someone that does a lot of hiring, if they are going to be just a back end engineer or a front end engineer, mm -hmm. like they have to be extremely talented yeah. if you're going to restrict yourself to a very specific silo right. you know you have to be an expert in when that i do area. feel like as as people grow throughout their careers they eventually become full stack i would think so because mm -hmm. like they you have know that, that might start changing right just the way the development space is changing that, right. that could start changing mm -hmm. um, but uh, up to this point it's and it, it, most experienced developers have worked right. across the broad spectrum of yeah. front end. And, and I think a lot of times they want to go full stack because they think that's more marketable right. for themselves. It yeah. might equate to more money. Right. Um, but I also feel like if you if somebody does have have the desire 
um, and the ambition to get to that next level, like an architect level, I think they do feel like they have to become full stack to get to that. Uh, yes, you, you would need to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. For most companies to view you in that spot, you would need to have full stack capabilities. Right. Unless you're working for like a Google right. or an Apple, Facebook, you know, these, <clears throat> okay. these types of companies. I mean, I, I have a, uh, one of my college roommates works for Apple um, and his job is incredibly, incredibly specific. specific. Mm -hmm. I mean, he works on like one one hundredth of an aspect of say an iPhone. Okay. Um, and that is like, he is a full-fledged expert with a whole team of experts. Right, on just that one thing. Exactly. Right. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of yeah. people that go, go that track, but I think if you're bouncing between, you know, client service type work right. and smaller startup type work, it's very beneficial be to be full stack. Well-rounded. Yeah, because I've also seen like cloud architect p titles. So that would be someone, I think that's kind of the new approach to a system administrator. Yeah. I think that's just what they're they're starting to call themselves. So that would be someone that is- Like AWS certification. Exactly. Like someone that understands the architecture. Someone, yeah, someone that- Like kind of what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, someone that can go into AWS and set up security groups Understand the implication of changes being made, but not necessarily doing making all the physical changes. They're not writing code. Yeah, right. They're just not on the server. Code. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're-, they're a lot of times they're going to be like security experts. Understand they, how like data flows and all of that. Yeah, how how data data flows through services, how data secured, encryptions, those types of PCI uh, compliance. Yeah, What's PCI compliance. Uh, wrapped around credit card processing, you have to have a, maintain a certain level of security. Oh. If you're storing. Uh, certain types of sensitive information okay. and there's different levels of PCI yeah gotcha. there's yeah there's different levels of PCI there's um, what's the medical HIPAA. one yeah HIPAA. HIPAA is if you're storing personal medical data on people there's a compliance called HIPAA where you have okay. to adhere and with all these compliances you have to get tested on a regular basis like they do intrusion testing mm -hmm. to make sure they can't break in and steal your stuff right um, and so yeah so there are people that specialize in those types of okay. technologies but that's not really development that's more right. geared towards the administration of the environment right right Thanks so much for listening to DevBits. You can now find us on all major podcasting platforms. We'd love your feedback, so please leave us a review and let us know if you have any suggestions for a topic. Follow Codesmith on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Toodles!